This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads here on WGVU. In the past, we've done several shows on the Gnostic Gospels, those non-canonical works which often indicate a direction that some scholars say Jesus was pointing that the biblical accounts didn't quite get. As many of you know, some of the Gnostic Gospels played a role in the Da Vinci Code. Well, all of this provided the ambition for Brian McLaren to write his latest book, The Secret Message of Jesus. In it, the author claims that there is something that Christ has communicated to his community that has not been readily grasped by adherents over the centuries. He also claims that, yes, there is indeed a conspiracy in all of this. We spoke with Reverend McLaren about a year and a half ago about his book, The Last Word and the Word After That, and we're very happy to welcome here again. Brian McLaren is an internationally known speaker. He's a member of the board of directors of Sojourners and the author of 10 highly acclaimed books on contemporary Christianity, including, besides The Last Word, A New Kind of Christian and A Generous Orthodoxy. And Brian, welcome to Common Threads again. It's great to be with you, Fred, and uh, that was a beautiful summary of our situation. Oh, good. <laughs> sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. <laughs> I think you got it. <laughs> so so uh, let's start with the Da Vinci Code. I know that a lot of the hoopla is over, and, yes. and that's just fine and dandy with me. <laughs> uh, but, but tell us uh, how the Da Vinci Code inspired you. Sure. Uh, well, uh, first of all, you know, I, I think... Some of the hoopla over the Da Vinci Code was uh, misdirected. I mean, the, the fact was it was a piece of fiction, and uh, I think anyone would be unwise to try to uh, to draw uh, gospel truth from from fiction. But what what was more interesting to me than the book was the popularity of the book. Why were so many people intrigued by a, a different telling of the story of Jesus and a different angle on the story of Jesus? And I saw in that uh, a, a kind of a tragic uh, reflection in the mirror for me. I, I've been a pastor for 24 years, uh, and I thought, how, why is it that there's such an interest for an alternative version of the story? The version of the story we must be telling, uh, or we're telling, must be uh, incredibly boring and bland. And uh, so that's what inspired me, because I, I think that there's some truth in that. We have been telling a boring and bland version of the story. You think, I mean, with everything that Christianity has inspired over 2,000 years, uh, uh, the Crusades, uh, and I don't mean just to pick on, on something that might be considered yeah. a negative, but, uh, you know, the, the creation of nation-states, uh, you know, one, how many billions now? Two billion Christians is there? Well, it's, uh, let's see, yeah, it's it's about a third of the, the global population, so that's right. about right. Right, so, so, I mean... With that, with those kinds of numbers, and with the the kind of presence that Christianity has in the world today, uh, why would you say that it's boring? Well, uh, there's a couple things I'd say. First, um, uh, you're you're right. To, when we look back at Christian history, we have to say there is there are opposite things that are true at the same time. 
the, 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 the Christian Church has brought incredible blessing and enrichment. Uh, we can't imagine what the world would be like if it weren't for the Christian faith. Uh, and there have been uncounted millions of people who never made it into the news, but whose faith inspired them to be wonderful mothers and fathers and neighbors and children. Uh, and so there's so much good. And then, of course, we have to also be honest that there are a lot of ways where we look back at the Christian uh, community through the centuries and see some pretty glaring failures, inquisitions, uh, crusades, uh, and uh, an awful lot of other things. So we do have to look at the mixed history and try to not overemphasize one against the other, but get, get the balanced view. Um, uh, but what is interesting when you look at global Christianity, when you say, yes, uh, about a third of the global population identifies with the Christian religion, uh, is that w if we look at the world as three uh, in three cultural groupings, we could talk about pre-modern or non-modern people, uh, and then we could talk about modern people. I, I, the, to me, the really loose way to define those two groups are, are modern people's lives are built around books and pre-modern people's lives or non-modern people's lives are not built around books. And then we could talk about postmodern, which is obviously a very controversial term, but if we were just to say culturally, postmodern means people whose lives are built around something after books, the Internet and so on. Uh, here, here's what I think we see. Where pre-modern people are entering the modern world, the Christian faith is growing at uh, an amazing pace. Africa, Latin America, some parts of Asia. Where people are stable in the modern world, the Christian faith is kind of stable. But where people are leaving the modern world and entering this postmodern world, uh, no religion is really there yet to, to greet them and help them. And the Christian faith is, is evaporating. And I think that's where, what we certainly see happening uh, across both Western and Eastern Europe in m most places. So th what it, that is a sign to me is that the Christian faith has figured out how to articulate its story in a way that makes sense to modern people. But to people moving beyond modernity, uh, there we have a real problem. And I think that's part of the discontent that Da Vinci Code uh, tapped into. You think that it was that person, the, the postmodern, that the Da Vinci Code was speaking to? I think often it is the, the postmodern person that, that the Da Vinci Code spoke to. Uh, for example, uh, I think postmodern people are tend to be, and these are such gross generalizations, uh, but they tend to be very sensitive to issues of power. Uh, and one special area they're sensitive to is the power of men over women. And so here Da Vinci Code uh, acknowledges the way the Church has too often been complicit in men dominating over women and presents a picture of Jesus showing respect for women. Well, although I think there's an awful lot of you know, uh, pure fiction in Da Vinci Code, in a certain sense, uh, Dan Brown is, 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 I think, articulating something that is true in the canonical Gospels about Jesus. He shows, for his time, an extraordinary sensitivity to women. Well, I would think that a lot of people in mainstream Christianity would agree that that, that is the case. Yes. Uh, here, here in the United States, that would be uh, widely, widely accepted in what we might call mainline Protestant Christianity. Um, I think it is increasingly accepted in more conservative evangelical Christianity, although there you'd have kind of the bastion of people who would uh, hold to a more hierarchical view of men and women. Uh, and then, of course, as you know, the Catholic Church is quite conflicted about this because the people in the pew, many of them wish 
uh, for more of an egalitarian approach, but of course the structure does not yet see that. In an interview uh, with uh, uh, Relevant Magazine, the question was put to you uh, about why did you write the Da Vinci Code. You talked about uh, having lunch with somebody, uh, an evangelical minister and speaker. Could you relay that story to us? Sure. Uh, uh, What led to me writing Secret Message of Jesus was, uh, it really started many, many years ago before I ever started writing books. I I had lunch with this well-known Christian speaker, whose name I don't like to mention because he doesn't like a lot of my books and I don't want to <laughs> give him guilt by association. But he actually helped me in a, a very profound way. And and we're having lunch, and he says to me, well, Brian, he says, most evangelicals, and I, I come from an evangelical background, although I have a lot broader associations, but he said most evangelicals don't have the foggiest idea of what the Christian gospel really is. Well, that was quite a provocative statement. And so I just sat there quietly kind of looking down at my hot and sour soup in this Chinese restaurant and uh, hoped that he would answer his own question, implied question. And then he didn't. He just didn't let me off the hook. He said, so, for example, Brian, how would you define the gospel? And I gave him my best answers, the answers I'd learned in Sunday school and church and in all the books I'd read. And he says, oh, that's exactly what most evangelicals would say. And I said, well, what would you say the gospel is? And he said, well, shouldn't we let Jesus define the gospel? For Jesus, the gospel was the good news of the kingdom of God. Well, at that moment, I, I thought to myself, I have no idea what he's talking about. I'm familiar with this phrase, kingdom of God. I mean, it's in the Lord's Prayer. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come. But I realized at that moment that the kingdom of God as a discrete message had not didn't really have coherence for me. And that's what sowed the seeds of me saying, you know, we Christians have a message about Jesus, but I'm not sure to the degree that we actually understand the message of Jesus. And that was like a little thorn in my, in my brain for, uh, for 10 years, really, and, and uh, eventually uh, came to fruition in this book. So you've got to tell me, if he said this to you, and he used the phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand, how does he not like what you're doing today? It, 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 that seems incongruous. Uh, well, I, I, I wonder how anybody doesn't like what I'm doing today. But, <laughs> uh, I, well, interestingly, although he was raising that question theologically, uh, you know, I think probably his theological system is very compatible with also a kind of political ideology. And I think he knows that that's not the, the way I, I am uh, uh, pursuing. So that would be a big part of his frustration, I think. And you said you thought he was a heretic while you were having lunch. He said, well, he's probably a heretic. Uh, uh, would that, if in fact you thought he was a heretic, how would you have handled your relationship with him at that point ten years ago? Well, you know, I, I have, uh, I've always been a, uh, someone who is curious, and and I've always had questions, and so I'm always attracted to people who I think know more than I do and who are clearer thinkers than I am, and so. I could tell uh, that I had a lot to learn from him. And I, I, I'm very sympathetic to sometimes people tell me, you know, I, I, read, I read your book, and uh, sometimes I hated you and wanted to throw the book in the trash, and other times I couldn't help but read it more, you know. And I think this is part of what intellectual and spiritual growth feels like for all of us. We're attracted. To, we want to know more, and yet knowing more upsets what we already have and makes us question some, some things that we were 
secure in. And it's a little bit like, you know, the, the, the title of Al Gore's uh, movie, An Inconvenient Truth. So we're drawn to the truth, but sometimes it's inconvenient and makes us feel uncomfortable. And I, and I think that's often when people throw words around like heretic. You know, it, it, what we're really saying is, you're really making me uncomfortable. When, when you responded to him, when he asked you, what do you think the message of the gospel is? And yes. you said justification by grace through faith and the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Did you think at that time that he was trying to convince Christians that this is not the case? Well, you know, um, I, I, I actually think he, I have ended up somewhere very close to where he was in that conversation, which would be to say this that we aren't denying this very seminal Protestant idea of justification by grace through faith, as opposed to what that means for people who aren't familiar with all this terminology, is the idea that God accepts us as we are. We don't have to perform a certain uh, uh, you know, baseline of good works. We don't have to hit a quota of good works and good deeds to clean ourselves up to the point where we're acceptable to our Creator, that, that we're that that's a gift that's given to us by grace, and all we have to do is, in a certain sense, accept our acceptance. Uh, and uh, so uh, it's not that he was denying that, but what he, he w- was saying, and what I've come to believe as well, is that um, those questions, uh, those theological questions that were very important for Protestants and Catholics in the 16th century uh, were not actually the questions that were being raised in Jesus' day. And at the, that, that in, maybe we could say it like this, it, you know, if, if you have a legal contract, you have the main contract, and then you have the fine print. Well, what I think part of what's happened to uh, all of our Christian traditions is some of the things that ought to be in the main contract have been reduced to fine print, and some of the things that are in our fine print ought to go back into the main contract. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Brian McLaren, and we're talking about his book, The Secret Message of Jesus, Uncovering the Truth That Could Change Everything. You mentioned in your book, you talked about heretics back in the, in the 3rd, 4th century, yeah. uh, and you talked about the horrible way in which they were treated. You also mentioned, you know, could it be that these people who tortured and killed these heretics were also heretics because they opposed Jesus' message of peace? Yes. Makes a a very good point. But as as a Christian, your spiritual forefathers are those people who did those nasty things to some people. Do you ever get, get the feeling that you might want to talk to those victims, and is there anything that we might learn from those people who were labeled heretics yes. early on? Yes, well, th- this is such an important question, and, and I, uh, I, I think that that question, Fred, is one that all of us, whatever our religion or lack thereof, uh, it, that kind of question helps us in a very, very profound way. Uh, you see, in a certain sense, every single one of us is part of a tradition and the tradition that we're part of has heroism and wonder and beauty and and you know her, her, and glo- uh, glorious dimensions but it also every tradition has things to be deeply ashamed of and if what we do and this is what a lot of religious communities do 
they split off from the parts of their heritage that did atrocities. And then they are able to say, I'm part of a heritage that never commits atrocities. Well, one of the terrible things is uh, the person who thinks he's incapable of committing atrocities or part of a group that's incapable, in some ways, is the most prone to commit atrocities in the future. Or, as, as is the group that's in denial about its past atrocities. So what I think would be a wonderful thing for the Christian faith and every religion and every intellectual tradition as well would be to go back into history and look at the atrocities and acknowledge them, try to face them squarely. You know, I think we do this in our lives. Uh, there's a wonderful film with Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito called The Big Kahuna. At the, at the end of the movie, Danny DeVito gives this fantastic speech, this young fundamentalist Christian. And Danny DeVito says, that his character says, the only way you have character is to have regret. Because regret means you've gone back and looked at your life and realized the things you've done that you're ashamed of. Well, to me, this maybe is a stage in the development of the Christian faith that is absolutely essential, that we soberly look back over our past and are able to acknowledge and process uh, our, our terrible failures. And part of that then may, means looking at the people who we excluded and called heretics and sometimes did terrible things to, and, real, and try to listen to what they were trying to say to us and see what we didn't learn the first time around. So do you believe in heresy? I mean, can, can somebody go too far? Can somebody cross the line? If you're having a conversation with somebody who claims to be Christian and he says something that is just completely off the wall, sure. you know, Jesus uh, came in a spaceship <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, he had 17 wives. I mean, right. at some right. point, what, what do you do? Right. Well, every, every community has an identity, and that identity involves things that, that, they, that they share as beliefs and things that they exclude as beliefs. So whether it's a scientific community or a, a literary community or a religious community, we, we all have those, those identities. Uh, and so as a Christian, I think there are things you can say about Jesus that are true, and I think there are things you can say that are false, and I think there are a lot of things you can say that we'd have to say that might be true, might be false, we don't really know. Um, but one of the points I try to bring up in on this book, Secret Message of Jesus, is that Jesus wasn't just bringing us a belief system. He was bringing us a way of life. And if in our attempts to defend the belief system that we think we get from Jesus, we actually violate the way of life that he exemplified and taught, something doesn't ring true about that as then being able to claim, you know, that we're a great success as followers of Jesus. Uh, and, and this is what we have to face in our history. Uh, of course, life gets very, very complex, and when you look at the history of the Church, you know, you have to face all of these complexities. But, but um, uh, I, I think the fact remains, though, that we have to look back and, uh, and see when, when, we, uh, when, when in the name of Christ human beings were tortured, when in the name of Christ witches were burned, when in the name of Christ, uh, you know, native peoples were exterminated. What we have to acknowledge is that whether we say that our theology was good or not, our behavior was atrocious, and, and we should acknowledge that. When you look at the, the large world of Christianity today, uh, 
you would say then that there, there is something missing in the way people are living their lives. Mm. Are you saying then that people have ignored the, the message to love one's neighbor, mm. to be compassionate, etc.? Because I'm sure a lot of Christians would say, I see that in my community all the time. Yes. It, when you see, they, they see the love or they see the lack of love. They see the love. I yes. mean, if, if, they're, if they're working uh, in, in, a, in a mission setting, sure. if they're working uh, in social justice, yes. if they're working in, in any number of fields, they might say, gosh, Brian, I don't know what you're seeing here because I'm, I'm seeing this. Yes. Well, thank God for every place where, uh, where we are seeing people live out the, the, the message and example of Jesus. I, and there are, thank God, you know, there are so many places. I, I've this year been in 20 countries uh, I've had the opportunity this year and in recent years to walk the streets of some of the worst slums in the world and see some of the t- most horrible cases of human suffering. And in place after place, I see people living out the, the teaching of Jesus in, in remarkable and beautiful ways. And, and we often take for granted the ways that a little country church in the middle of Kansas is just really a beautiful example of a Christian community. So, there, you know, there are so many wonderful things happening, there's no question about it. But, at the same time, uh, we, we can look around uh, our world and our culture today, and I think we can see some, some things that are misfiring pretty badly. And that's what I'm really, uh, I'm really going after. I, I certainly don't want to minimize the great things that are happening, but um, let, let me just, could I just give you two examples? Sure. Uh, uh, I, I I think so many of us agree that we're at a crisis point in our world in relation to the environment. Uh, the extinction of species, global warming, uh, so many so many issues are, are really uh, on the front burner for us. And um, uh, when you hear Christians who I think don't understand this essential message of Jesus about the kingdom of God, you often hear uh, what theologians would call it an eschatology of abandonment. Eschatology means what we expect in the future. And they basically say, look, the world's going to be destroyed. In fact, the worse the world gets, the more we see the end is coming. And that's actually a good thing, because we'll all go to heaven, and it'll be better there. Well, what that view does is gives them almost a carte blanche for irresponsibility about the environment. Every person who's converted to that kind of a theology, I think, is a person who's converted to be part of the problem rather than part of the solution in relation to the environment. Uh, uh, so that would certainly be one example. Uh, and another example would be exactly what you brought up before. If, uh, if my understanding of the Christian faith or any other faith uh, gives me the idea that uh, people who don't believe what I believe are my enemy, and I'm in a culture war against them, and every time I see them, I want to get into an argument with them, and I want to tell them how wrong they are. Well, that's going to create one kind of world and one kind of community. Uh, but if it, I, my understanding of the teaching of Jesus is that it actually is a message about this mysterious, beautiful reality called the kingdom of God, and that what that pictures is not an escape from this world, but a sense of mission in this world where I look at my neighbor uh, in a special way. In fact, I even look at my enemy in a special way in a radically new way. Well, that will produce a very different world. So, you know, these, these different beliefs really do get translated into different ways of life, and they'll create two very different worlds. If I recall correctly, uh, didn't Ronald Reagan's Interior 
Secretary James Watt have that uh, abandonment eschatology? Yes. Uh, I, I remember him saying some pretty outrageous things. I think later on he retracted them, but, uh, but uh, I'll tell you, I, in my travels, it, it, that, that kind of thinking is still out there. Thankfully, I think the tide is going out on it, but it is still out there. I, I was on uh, I was on Larry King a couple of years ago uh, with a religious uh, a panel of religious leaders, and uh, I, to my utter surprise, it was just expressed in a very almost naive way by one of the other speakers. You know, I seem to to see that uh, the environment is more and more. Uh, a very important subject for people who call themselves evangelical Christians. And and uh, two years ago, I wouldn't have said that. Well, I really feel the tide is turning, and I think the issue of the environment is going to be one of the key issues that helps turn the tide. If you're uh, joining us right now, we're talking with Brian McLaren, and uh, his latest book is The Secret Message of Jesus, Uncovering the Truth That Could Change Everything. And, Brian, we are out of time for this week, but I would sure love if you could uh, spare some time next week, and we'll continue this conversation. That would be a great pleasure. Thanks. I'm Fred Stella. You're listening to WGVU. Please join us again next week here on Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week we began our conversation with Brian McLaren. He's the author of The Secret Message of Jesus, Uncovering the Truth That Could Change Everything. Brian McLaren is an internationally known speaker, a member of the Board of Directors of Sojourners, and the author of 10 highly acclaimed books on contemporary Christianity. And we're so happy to have him back this week. 
Brian, welcome back again to Common Threads. Uh, great to be with you. Great. I always uh, appreciate the good questions you ask and the great discussion and dialogue that you uh, encourage. Thank you, thank you. You're not saying that because my mother told me told you to say that, right? Well, she and I have a little deal, <laughs> but uh, no. Uh, okay. And my goodness, uh, in, in these times, what a great thing to be encouraging interfaith dialogue in a respectful, healthy way. That's that's so, what we that's what we try to do, uh, Brian. The subtitle of the book, Uncovering the Truth That Could Change Everything. What do you mean by everything? Mm-hmm. Ontologically, uh, um, you know, ethnically, how, how do we, how, what's everything? Yes, well, you know, one of the, the key ideas of this book uh, is that we who call ourselves Christians have, uh, have subordinated one of the, really the central message uh, of Jesus, which was this message of the kingdom of God. And for most, so many Christians, that, that message has now, the, the phrase kingdom of God has now come to mean heaven after you die. And so what that means for so many Christians is that they're talking about uh, the proper way to prepare oneself for heaven after you die and help, helping other people prepare for heaven after, after we die. But uh, my proposal in this book is that that actually isn't what the phrase means at all. In fact, it's almost the opposite. For example, in the Lord's Prayer, one of the most well-known of Jesus' teachings, he teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's a movement of God's will from heaven to earth, not the evacuation of people from earth to heaven. And... uh, So if we have a a theology that makes us imagine how we can escape this earth and kind of we assume it's hopeless, it's just going on its way down, uh, and we're interested in escaping uh, and avoiding being polluted by the world and staying in our little religious enclaves, I call it a warehousing approach to faith where the church becomes a, a warehouse where souls are stored to later on be shipped to their final destination. Uh, you know, that produces a very different world, especially when 30% of the, the people in the world are affiliated with this religion, than a world where people say, no, God loves the world, God cares about the world, cares about the environment, cares about all human beings, whatever their religion, cares about the poor as well as the rich, in fact, has a special concern for the poor. And so our job is to cooperate with God, in a certain sense, to join God in God's concern for the world. Well, that thrusts us into the world with a sense of mission and hope and charity and solidarity. And, uh, in fact, it thrusts us into doing the kind of things you do with this show. Say, let's talk with each other so that we can treat one another with respect. So when you say the kingdom of God is at hand, might you be able to help us out with that term, at hand? Yes. What what is the Greek behind that? Do you know? Well, the, the phrase is a somewhat enigmatic phrase, and you find the, the dynamic tension in, in the word reflected in all of Jesus' teachings. Uh, I think the simplest analogy would be if you're at your tool bench and you're building something and you need a hammer and you say, oh, where is my hammer? Somebody will say, it's at hand, meaning you can reach out and take it. It's not in your hand. It requires some response of you to reach out and and take it, but it's not out of reach. So what I think Jesus is saying to people is you, you can stop waiting for something to happen for there to be a good future. 
uh, that God has, in a sense, drawn near, and now the opportunity is there for all of us to reach out and seize the opportunity. Uh, let me, let me uh, maybe give an analogy like this. All of us believe that it would be a better world someday if rich people started caring about poor people, and instead of investing all of their energy in becoming more and more rich, they were to say, look, I've got enough. I want to invest my energy now in helping people who are poor. Well, all of us believe that would be a good idea someday. But what if, you know, if, if a prophet from God or a messenger from God showed up and say, said to us, uh, you don't have to wait for someday. The opportunity to do that is at hand. It's available now. That's the kind of thing I think Jesus is saying with that little phrase at hand. Do some people interpret that as meaning, now you, you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, it's not us being evacuated, it's not, it's not us going up there, it's him, it's God being here. Yes. Uh, do some Christians interpret that as meaning that the reign of Jesus for a thousand years is at hand? Is that what they're, they're thinking? Well, uh, you know, we have, there are so many issues. This is where this becomes so interesting, because... Uh, uh, this this assumption that a lot of Christians have that uh, that the Bible gives a kind of timeline of the future that that assumption is under really really deep questioning now by some of our best biblical scholars. What they're doing is they're helping us understand that at the time of Jesus there was a whole genre of literature that today we call Jewish apocalyptic literature. By genre, I mean it's a type of literature that has a special set of rules. An analogy today might be. Uh, might be uh, science fiction. So, in fact, just last night I was flipping through channels and spent about 15 minutes on an old rerun of Star Trek. Now, when you read Star Trek, or when you watch Star Trek, you don't assume that they're telling you what the world is really going to be like. You assume they're giving you a picture of the future that will affect your behavior today. Uh, th there's a certain sense that science fiction inspires us, sometimes with hope, so here's a federation of planets where people have gotten beyond war, at least among humans. Or sometimes it's, it's a vision of fear like the old Planet of the Apes movies or so many of the destruction movies. You know, they, they show, boy, it could be a horrible future. And the purpose of seeing that is that it will change your behavior in the, in the present. And I think Jewish apocalyptic uh, was, was working more in that way than in being a, a crystal ball to tell you, you know, to basically say the future is a story that's already written. Well, that has huge implications for how we read the, the stories in the Bible and, and especially the, the, the message of Jesus. And uh, so what I think it does is, is it has the effect of uh, bringing us to this idea of the at-handness of the kingdom of God. We all have to make a choice. If you want to say what the future will be like, I think Jesus' answer would be, well, it depends on how you and I live. It depends on what we do. Uh, two very different futures unfold based on, on how we live today. So how do you use Revelation when you, when you preach? Uh, when you say Revelation, you mean the book of Revelation? Yeah, the book. Well, uh, it's a perfect example of, of uh, Jewish apocalyptic. In fact, when you read some of the other ex documents that we have, uh, and some of them are contained in the Apocrypha, uh, uh, the collection of uh, writings from the two centuries or so before Christ, Jewish writings, you see how strong the similarities are. And I think what the book of Revelation is doing is, uh, is 
doing uh, what uh, another literary insight can help here it's what literature of the oppressed does when you think about people who are oppressed and of course the early christian communities were uh, quite bitterly persecuted and their persecution was largely political but that's another story we can come back to um, when you have people who are persecuted if they speak the truth that they don't believe in the regime that's in power then they're liable to be thrown into jail and killed um, but if they avoid doing that by just being silent in a certain sense they're submitting to the powers that be and they're letting them win and dominate so what does people do what do people do with the literature of the oppressed they find a way to tell the truth about the powers that be in 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 a in a uh, literary way they don't say the roman empire will fall they say there's a beast with seven heads but it will be defeated by uh by the lamb right and it uses language like that to say things aren't what they seem and i think that's what's going on in the book of revelation the early christian community is saying right now caesar seems to be in power and of course because he's not mentioned they couldn't mention him there's some debate whether it was written in the time of Nero or maybe a few decades later under another uh, oppressive Caesar. Uh, but they're saying, you know, it looks like Caesar's in power right now, but someday uh, Jesus is going to win. And, uh, and, of course, it's sort of interesting today, isn't it? In, in a way, they really were right. Uh, not too many of us are sitting around today saying, I wonder how Nero wants us to live. <laughs> <laughs> This is true. Uh, last week we mentioned briefly something about the Gnostic Gospels because uh, the the fascination with the Gnostic Gospels yes. is one of your uh, uh, motivations yes. for the secret message of Jesus. Do you think for the Christian of today that the Gnostic Gospels hold any value for study, even even though the person reading them might come to them with the belief these these are not the inspired words of yes. God. Well, this is, to me, this is what's been so interesting when I actually read the Gnostic Gospels. Um, uh, first, to answer your question, I think, uh, I think they are a great uh, something worth studying. Uh, if for no other reason than they help us get a feel for the complexity of the religious world in the late first and uh, all through the second century. Uh, and we realized that it was a very, very complex religious world, and that for everyone who affiliated in any way with the message of Jesus, they were living in cross-currents of doctrines and counter-doctrines and theological debates, uh, and in a way that is somewhat encouraging because I think a lot of us feel that's the way it is today. Everything that we say is, is contested, and there's all kinds of denominations and parties and movements and all the rest. Uh, but what uh, to me is quite interesting about the the Gnostic Gospels. Well, if I could, could I go into two things that I think are sure. special. Mm -hmm. One of them, Fred, is that uh, when you, when you look at the uh, content of the Gnostic Gospels, they're almost entirely sayings of Jesus, divorced from Jesus actually doing things in a historical context. And what is so interesting about the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that Jesus' sayings are always situated, and they're situated with groups like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Herod Well, the Essenes aren't mentioned, but we maybe see a reflection of them in John the Baptist, and the Herodians. And we see Jesus interacting with public figures like 
Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. Well, so the canonical Gospels are very, very situated, uh, but the Gnostic Gospels uh, extract from any situation and just give us kind of disembodied, unsituated sayings. When we pay attention to the canonical Gospels in that way, we realize that they are just sizzling with politics. And we help under, it helps us look at Jesus in a fresh light. Now, the sad fact is that most Orthodox Christians have paid almost no attention to the politics. And that's one of the things I try to do in this book, Secret Message of Jesus, resituate Jesus in his political and social setting, which is just electric. It just it is so exciting. Uh, uh, and then the second thing that I notice when I read the Gnostic Gospels is w- what it seems to me is happening is that there is a, a kind of philosophical movement. It's an extreme form of Neoplatonism. And w- what you realize is they have become very attracted to many of Jesus' sayings. And so they're, in a sense, it, it, I think what's going on in the Gnostic Gospels is a bit of a struggle to find out, will Jesus become an example of a certain kind of Neoplatonic Greek philosophy, or will Jesus not be domesticated by that? And that's the struggle, I think, between the Gnostic and canonical Gospels. Uh, And it's why it's worth reading both. I think each becomes clearer in contrast to the other. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and with me is Brian McLaren. And he, among other things, is the author of The Secret Message of Jesus, Uncovering the Truth That Could Change Everything. Speaking of Jesus and politics, let's, uh, let's talk about your uh, work in that area. You are a board chair for Sojourners, correct? Yes. And, and some would, be cons- uh, would consider this to be something of an evangelical antithesis of uh, the, the religious right. Um, so how is something like Sojourners essentially different from what the religious right does when both of you seem to use your own interpretations to arrive at cultural conclusions, and sure. they seem at odds with each other? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, this is a, a really worthwhile conversation because I think it's part of what's going on in, in the United States now, but in some ways this is a world uh, interfaith uh, conversation because we're all trying to figure out how personal faith uh, intersects with public life. And um, I I think there have been two common ways for religious people to relate their faith to public life. One has been the approach of civil religion. And what that involves is using your religious faith, uh, well, gaining political power and using that political power to impose your religious faith on other people. Or you might you even say the opposite. It's using your religious faith to keep the polit- people in power politically that you like. So it's this kind of collusion between political power and, uh, and religious faith. Some people don't want to be involved with that, and so what they do is develop a religious subculture, and what they try to do is just withdraw from all affairs of public life, and they have a private personal faith, a, a faith of a religious subculture. And um, and uh, so we see those two uh, those two forces in our world today. Uh, the there's a third alternative, and and that's the alternative that uh, I think Dr. Martin Luther King represents. Uh, he he used to say, 
that religion should not be the master of culture, uh, I'm sorry, of, of uh, government, nor should it be the servant of government, but it should be the conscience of government. Now, that might not say it all, but what I think he's articulating is looking for an alternative uh, to, uh, to what we so often see. And that certainly is the struggle of sojourners. How can we try to bring insights from uh, our Christian faith, but also the faith community in general, especially things like concern for the poor, concern for the environment, that are broadly shared among people of faith? How can we bring those to the public sector, but not do it uh, in, in the kind of dominating, manipulative way that uh, we've all seen too much of. So do you think that, would you be working for some sort of meeting of the minds with those people on the other side of the spectrum? Uh, on the religious right? Yes. Well, uh, I, I think there, it will be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of years, because my sense is that the first run of the religious right uh, that has been, uh, you know, a, a 25 or 30-year run, uh, maybe even a little longer, uh, has been uh, an attempt to use the mechanisms of political power uh, and, and to play the game of politics by the rules of politics, uh, cr de develop certain wedge issues that will divide the electorate, and all you need is 51% to get your way. You know, to me, that seems to be the way it's played out, whether that was originally intended or not. But I think now, just after a number of years in power, a lot of people on the religious right are becoming somewhat disillusioned, and they're realizing that uh, there are a whole lot of problems with that approach. And it will be interesting to see if there's a, a kind of second thought uh, uh, reflection that happens among many in the religious right. I'm sure some will not have a second thought. But among those who do, I think there'll be possibility for dialogue. And, and I think what that will open up the possibility of doing is not limiting, I think it'll change the, the dialogue in two ways. Uh, first, we'll see that religious faith not only brings answers to our culture, but it also brings questions. And very often, questions are a hundred times more powerful and valuable than answers, especially if the answers aren't very good. And then the second that's, that's a very Jewish thing to say. Well, I, I, I think it is. I think it's something, and of course, maybe part of all, what we're all struggling with is helping Christians rediscover that uh, Jesus was a Jew and that we all follow a Jewish, a Jewish uh, traveling Jewish rabbi. Um, so, so that's one whole dimension. And then the other dimension is to realize that to seize on two or three wedge issues is uh, is a very unwise thing to do, that people of faith should have a whole range of issues uh, that we care about and not reduce them to a couple. By the way, um, I happened to come up, uh, upon the Sojourner's Voter's Guide that was yes. out recently, and uh, it was, uh, at all places, uh, a Hindu ashram. Yes. Uh, in the, you know, they have free literature there, and I thought, now that's interesting, a Christian Voter's Guide here yes. and and i was expecting that it would be a christian coalition guide and yes. just thought maybe somebody snuck into the middle of the night and then i read it go oh okay no no i get it now yeah. <laughs> then i i i gave it to somebody else whom uh, i know uh, votes the complete opposite way of uh of christian conservatives and i said yes. here's a voter's guide for you uh, just just to see her seethe and then she reads it go oh 
oh, well, they're getting better these days. Oh, and, oh, and then she goes, oh, it's Sojourners. And I didn't even know she knew Sojourners. But yeah. yeah, she knew it. Like, the, the jig is up. Um, what about those people who they're willing to... Uh, they're willing to talk about the environment. They're willing to talk about help for the poor. They're willing to talk about so many of the points that you in Sojourners feel are just very, very important yeah. uh, to uh, the American dream. But they just really stand hard and firm on some of the non-negotiables, such as abortion, such as uh, uh, gay rights in one form or another, gay yeah. marriage, let's say. Are you able to let them in, in 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 some way without making them feel that that well you're you're a second class citizen here? Yes. If you're... Well, uh, to me, you know, you, the the tone with which you ask questions on on your on this show is a tone that makes room for people to express themselves honestly and from their heart. It, it doesn't. It isn't. You know, I, when I'm talking to you, I don't have the feeling that everything I'm saying is being scrutinized uh, for counterattack. And uh, to me, this is part of what we need in the political dialogue. For example, people who are really, really uh, uh, very, very strong on the issues of abortion and, and homosexual marriage, uh, if we could draw those people out and really try to understand and, and maybe draw them out even more than they are in touch with themselves. You know, sometimes a, a therapist or a good friend listens to us and just keeps asking questions, and we find ourselves saying things that we didn't even know that we knew, if we could draw them out, maybe we'd be able to find some things at seven or eight levels of excavation down that we would be able to say, boy, you know, you've really got a point there. We really agree. But for example, even people who are pro-choice, if, if, you know, if you think about it, they, and they get a chance to really just express themselves, they'll say, you know, we do live in a highly sexualized culture. When, when, you know, if we have advertisers who are always using sex to try to sell their products, and what that does is it keeps everyone a little bit sexually aroused and anxious and, you know, preoccupied all the time. Well, that might have a lot of unintended consequences, like sexual harassment on the job and, and promote, uh, you know, could over the course of 40,000 advertisements a year or whatever it is that we see, it, it, that could have a certain effect of undermining commitments of husbands and wives, and boy, that causes a lot of pain, and that hurts a lot of children. And I think sometimes underneath the issues of abortion and homosexual marriage is this sense that the way we're doing sex in our society is irresponsible. In fact, I see a strong connection between our problems with sexuality and our problems with the environment. Uh, and what, really? maybe, maybe if we could get deep enough on those issues we would start to realize that this is where we in the faith community could raise questions. You've got to tell me then, so the, the, what's the uh, connect between sex and the environment? Well, uh, it seems to me that we have a kind of an adolescent character in our, in our culture, and here it is. I, there are some things I want to do, and I don't care what the consequences are. Don't tell me about the consequences. I want to do those things now. And so then we do them, and we create negative consequences, and then we want to fix the consequences and without ever going back and realizing that beneath that cause and effect chain is a character trait of acting without concern for consequences. So we 
just keep building more and more roads. We keep pumping more and more carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, we keep uh, creating more nuclear waste, and we don't think about what we're going to do with it. Why? Because we want cheap energy now, because we want a fast profit now. And, uh, uh, and so we have this problem in the, in the world of, uh, of the environment. Well, I think, you know, for uh, a, a young guy who's uh, in the back seat of a car with his girlfriend and they're steaming up the windows, he's not at that moment thinking, you know, if I get her pregnant, this has long-term effects for the rest of our lives. Or if we exchange a sexually transmitted disease, we're going to live with this for a long time. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing I'm saying. There's this underlying lack of wisdom that both of those behaviors represent. And, uh, and just cleaning things up on the other side uh, doesn't deal with a deeper issue. To me, those are the kind of issues I, I think that Jesus and really every responsible faith tradition raises. It makes us think about wisdom and the long-term consequences of our actions. Excellent answer. Uh, Brian, we're out of time right now, but I want to thank you for being here again this week. A great stimulating conversation and... Uh, I oh, tell us uh, what book are you on now? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, this this last book was Secret Message of Jesus, and uh, the subtitle was Uncovering the Truth That Could Change Everything. And I'm doing a sequel and really trying to explore the, the relation with, of Jesus' message to uh, the top global problems in our world. And this book will be called Everything Must Change. The Secret Message of Jesus: Uncovering the Truth That Everything Could Change by Brian McLaren. One of the best pictures of Jesus you'll find on a book uh, this, uh, this season. Uh, Brian, thanks again. It's always a pleasure. Thanks. I'm Fred Stella. You're listening to Common Threads. Please join us again next week here on WGVU Radio. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.